My brothers and sisters, good morning. Thank you. Today, in our second reading, we hear from the first letter of St. John. St. John, the apostle, the beloved disciple. Scholars speculate that he wrote this letter after he wrote the gospel, that it was at the very end of his life. And I'm not sure how much you know about John, uh, how much has been said before. I've only been here a couple months, and I only get to be here in this parish every third week. But let me, let me share a little bit that might be redundant. John, beloved by the Lord, called, went out with the apostles, and unlike all the other apostles who preached the word of God around the world and then suffered a martyr's death for their faith, John was not killed. John lived to see everyone that he loved die. He lived to be a very old man, and when he was finally captured, he was not sentenced to death, he was sentenced to exile. They sent him off to an island in the middle of the sea, the island of Patmos, where he would have to live out the end of his days old and alone. And so you can imagine John at the end of his life with tanned skin and wrinkled brow, perhaps a little bit worse for the wear on that sea island. At the end of his life alone, remembering. How did he get here? How did he end up like this. He remembered. He remembered the very first time that he saw Jesus at the Jordan River when he was just one face among many faces. When John the Baptist had to point him out and say, Behold the Lamb of God. And he followed him. His limbs a little bit more limber, his joints a little bit less creaky. He chased after Jesus already on his way down the Jordan. He spoke to him, stayed with him, supped with him that night. And whatever he heard, whatever he saw that night, it was enough to make him chase after and find others to say, we found the Messiah. He remembered grime on his tired fingers working on slippery and swollen knots in the net before a moment of clarity when a voice of clarity called him by name, John, follow me. And he did. And he remembered following Jesus and remembered witnessing deformities in men mended and devils cast out. He remembered hearing words 
that he could neither understand nor dismiss. He remembered following Jesus up the mountain where he was transfigured and a pulse of air and glory pushed against his body. He remembered storm and sea stilled, silky and sorry, and everybody saved. He remembered Jesus. And he remembered himself. He remembered the Samaritan town that rejected Jesus and his desire to call down fire from heaven to consume them. That's how he earned his nickname, the Son of Thunder. He remembered arguing about which of the disciples was the greatest and remembered asking Jesus if he could sit at his right when he ascended to his throne in glory. Remembered his younger days, his prideful days, where he accused the one who was doing mighty works in the name of Jesus, but who did not follow after their company. He remembered the Last Supper and the heartbeat of the Master that quickened course after course. He remembered tears in the garden, shame in the court, blood on the mountain and the musty tomb. But as an old man, he remembered what happened after. He remembered Jesus appearing in the upper room. He remembered witnessing the executed eating breakfast on the beach over a charcoal fire. He remembered Jesus ascending on clouds to heaven, something unbelievable, but that he saw with his own eyes years and years before. He remembered preaching in his name, going here and there around Jerusalem. He remembered being beaten, lashed, imprisoned, and hunted. He remembered traveling out of Jerusalem, running, fleeing, praying. He remembered his pain. He still had the scars to show what he had earned for his preaching of the gospel. Scars on body and in mind, things that he could not unsee or forget. Scars in heart because of the things he had endured and the things he had witnessed. He remembered as he now sat in exile, old and alone. How did I get here? How did this happen? And you can imagine John's arthritic hands 
taking pen to paper, or scroll if you prefer, and writing down what he remembered, piercing through pain and sorrow and bitterness to share the one and most important thing. He wrote this letter, Beloved, See what love the Father has bestowed on us. Yes, love. See what love the Father has bestowed on us. Love that is bigger. How big? Big, y'all. Big enough to push out the pain, to overwhelm, to envelop whatever bitterness might be tempted to enter into his heart to say, how dare you, God, push me to this life? No! Love, love of the Father is the thing he remembered most. See what love the Father has bestowed on us that we may be called children of God. (laughs) Love is his message. And then he says, see what love the Father has bestowed on us that we may be called children of God. Yet so we are. He says, yet so we are. Yet is a conjunction that implies disbelief. When he says to you, and he writes this down, he says, see what love the Father has bestowed on us that we may be called children of God. He expects you not to believe him. He expects you to disbelieve him. He expects you to scoff, to say, children of God, John, Uh, really, we don't need to go to that extreme. That's ridiculous. Because when he writes this and he says, God loves you, to him, to be a child of God is something so new as a concept, so close to disbelief that it seems almost impossible. You got to know and you got to hear it this way that when John imagined himself as a child of God and his followers heard that God loved them, this was not like a song they learned in vacation Bible school that they could be like, yeah, I know, it's this old thing. Of course, yeah, Jesus loves me, this I know, I know. No, this captivated them. No one had ever said this before because when John was growing up, He himself, the man, homo, ecce homo, the man, he knew for certain that he was not a son of God. He knew that it was certainly true that God did not look at him with a father's eyes, with a father's love, and with a father's heart. It had been that way in the beginning, But not since the beginning had it been that way. Not because God's heart had soured, but because our hearts had soured. 
that in the fall we had forsaken our relationship with God. We had said, don't need that anymore and gone on to shinier, tastier fruit. At least so we imagined. And now the one most prized thing to belong to God, to be loved by Him, that wasn't for us to reach out and grasp anymore. Try as we might, we couldn't possess it. But things had changed with Jesus. <laughs> things had changed with Jesus so that now he could say, Beloved, see what love the Father has bestowed on us. See what love the Father has bestowed on us. Do you see? Do you see what love the Father has bestowed on us? On you? Give me grace for a minute. Give me a second. Give me your attention for a moment. I'm not speaking to you all anymore. If I were, I would say y'all. I've said it in the homily already. I'm talking to you now. I'm talking to you. Let me remind you of something important. You. God loves you. God loves you. When he looks at you, <laughs> if, if you could see his face when he sees your face, you would see his muscles relax just a little bit. You would see his eyes light up. You would see his smile subtle. When he looked at you, you, and he said, not ugh, him again, not, ugh, if you knew what she did, I can't believe she has the nerve to, never. He looks at you and he says, finally, finally, my delight my son, my daughter. He does. Never once has he looked at you and said, I am so disappointed. Never once has he said, oh, but they're second best. I wish that I could have her instead of... Never once. Because every time he looks at you, his heart skips a beat. I had, uh, I had this moment I shared with the people at St. Mary's last weekend when I was in seminary because I don't know if you know this about seminary, but seminary is sort of a weird place. Uh, it's a place of constant evaluation. Just to get in, I had to take an eight-hour-long psychological evaluation, and then I had to do it again halfway through just to make sure I was still not crazy. I, I, I once later asked... Uh, a friend of mine who's a licensed psychologist, I said, hey, do you know this psychological evaluation I had to take? What was this test? And they said, oh yeah, that's the intake test they give to criminals before they enter the prison system. And I said, oh good, that's a nice analogy for seminary. That we were received, we entered in, but every single month at least, we had to meet with someone on a formation staff who would ask us about our goals, about our grades, 
about our relationships and our ministry? Did we measure up to these standards that they had put forth for us? Could we make it? Did we have what it took? And then all of that data would be sent back to the bishop and all the people in the diocese and your friends and your parish where you grew up and your family would hear about whether or not you had what it took to be the priest that they were hoping you would be because every time you came home they'd say, look, he's studying to be our next priest. He's going to be ordained. And let me tell you, that's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. And so at a certain point in time in seminary, I found myself in the office of my spiritual director, a priest who was there to guide my spiritual life. He was from Milan. His name was Father Pietro Rosati. And I was just dishing out to Father Pietro all the reasons that I did not have what it takes. All the things that I said, look, I, I cannot be a priest for these people. I was giving him a litany of all of the, the failures, all of the ways that I couldn't measure up to expectations, all the things that I thought disqualified me. And he listened for two or three minutes as I wailed on and on and on. And eventually he interrupted me and said, No! God loves you. And I said, Well, yeah, I, I know, I know. God. And he said, No! God loves you. God loves you. And his delightful cigarette-stained Italian accent. He, I, he gave me this moment, I, I called it my spiritual goodwill hunting moment, because I think all of us need to be reminded that the fact that you are loved by God is not casual. It's not a picture from a coloring book. It's not something to be assumed and dismissed. It is the most defining fact of your life. It is not something about you. It is who you are. You are beloved of the Father. No matter what any other thought in your mind, no matter what any other voice in your life says, you are Loved by God. Beloved, see what love the Father has bestowed on us that we may be called children of God. And you are a child of God. You belong to his family. When he looks at you, John saw this happen in his life, growing up knowing he was not a son. He was, at best, a servant. Until the Last Supper, when Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. And you can imagine John puffing his chest out a little bit. Friend of God? <laughs> Did you hear what he said? He said, friend of God. And then, at the tomb after the resurrection, when the women came and saw Jesus, he said, go and tell my brothers that I am ascending to my God and to their God, to my Father and to their Father. And then, they were not even just friends anymore. They were children of God. And if children, 
then guess what? You're in the will. The inheritance is yours. And you are loved by a father with a father's heart. Loved by God. So we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, John continues. He says, we know that we shall be like him. And he says the reason that the world doesn't know all of this, the reason the world doesn't know us, the reason that when you go out there, you know what I mean, outside the stained glass and the walls and the hardwood and the stain, the reason the world doesn't know who you are, doesn't treat you like the son, the daughter of God that you are, is because the world doesn't know him, doesn't know God. And if they don't know God, then they won't know his children. But you are a child. How? This is my last thing that I'll say. How did you become a child of God? How did this happen to you? Who gave you this power? Huh? Who stamped you this way? No power of personality gave this to you. No political system, no social action, no petition was signed door to door so that they could say, yes, he's a child of God, do you see? There was no contest that you entered. There was no vote. Nothing in the world made you who you are. Not a thing. Rather, like Peter says in the first reading, it is by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, crucified, raised, in his name, this miracle has happened. There is no salvation through anyone else, nor is there any other name under heaven given to the human race by which we are saved. My friends, make no mistake. You are saved. You are loved. You are a child of God. And creaky old John, at the end of his life, remembered more than any other thing, more than any terrible thing he had witnessed or had had happen to him. He did not remember himself as a victim. He remembered himself as a child, prized and honored and delighted in. So anytime any fickle, evil thought pops into your mind and tries to tell you you are anything else, you kick it right out. And you don't give it a second, a space to breathe in your heart. Because you are loved by God. Beloved, see what love the Father has bestowed on you. See it as something new. See it as the most important thing that has ever happened in your life. See it. And don't ever look away. Amen.